Welcome to Behind the Lens for another fabulous week with some fabulous filmmakers. Let me tell you, uh, joining me today, first of all, I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, movieshark2blur.com. You can find me online, in print, uh, around the world, and every week right here live on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, all of Behind the Lens is also available on iTunes. It's a free listen and we shoot the show every week with video and then intercut some beautiful movie stills from the respective films that our guests are talking about so that it gives you a visual context and you can find uh, all those videos on uh, Elias Entertainment Movie Shark DeBlore on YouTube and on MovieSharkDeBlore.com plus I found out uh, some, some station in China is now picking up the show and showing the videos every week. So everybody out there in China and Asia, you can find us over there, our, all of our video casts there as well. So welcome. It's uh, Summer's picking up, spring is picking up, and we've got some really exciting stuff coming up in the world of film and here on the show. Uh, first of all, for all the TCM fans out there, one of the announcements you've all been waiting for, yes, Danny Miller, I am talking about you. Um, the opening night announcement was released this morning. Uh, TCM Film Festival, back for its seventh year this year, I think, either six or seven. Uh, opening night is going to be All the President's Men. It stars Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, directed by Alan Pakula, 1976 film. And I know, I hear the uproar already in the cosmos. Um, with a lot of classic film fans saying this is 1976 is not a classic film. You know, this discussion has been going on for a number of years um, with the passage of time, with the programming at TCM, with the programming of the TCM Film Festival, uh, which is uh, April 28th down at uh, the beautiful Chinese theater, the Mans Complex, the Egyptian, Hollywood Roosevelt's the home base, El Capitan will undoubtedly have some Disney stuff going on. But... You have to understand, classic films, as time passes, more, more time gets packed into what is deemed a classic. What is classic to many in my age bracket, in the 50-plus bracket of the 30s and the 40s, you know, that's ancient history to youngsters. But youngsters today, these 19- and 20-year-olds, to them a classic film is a 1976 film, is Rocky is All the President's Men. So before anybody gets in a huff about as the schedule for TCM starts getting released little by little over the next couple of weeks, bear that in mind. Um, All the President's Men could not be more timely, more topical. And although special guests affiliated with the film have not been announced yet, um, it, he is a friend to TCM Film Festival. He has been there before. And I would not be surprised if he is not there on the red carpet opening night, but Dustin Hoffman. Uh, so as we get more TCM information, every week I'll be imparting that. Plus, you'll also find that on my website on MovieSharkDeBlore.com. So that was the big announcement this morning for all the classic film fans. So I hope many of you are happy. Uh, and those of you that aren't, you know, it's a fabulous film. Whether you want to call it a classic or not. It is a fabulous film, and in this politically charged year, it could not be more appropriate. Um, Brian, what is, our, what is our Star Wars update this week? Brian is in charge of the official countdown to Star Wars 8. As I stall to open up this bookmark, I would say I agree with you in the, uh, the classic thing, because I, I, I look at a film like Psycho as a classic, and mm-hmm. Psycho isn't too old either. It's in the 50s. And also uh, Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. That's a classic to me as a 24-year-old. See? Not, not you know, and th- this is something that a lot of people are not understanding with the programming they're seeing on TCM and the programming in the festival. Do you ever watch TCM? Yeah. Yeah. But 
So I, I know. Like they have like The Godfather playing every once in a while. That's a classic film to me because it's from. That's that's exactly it. You know, as time passes and the younger generations come up, what seems contemporary to many of us is a classic to you. So, you know, there again, I can't wait to see the lineup for TCM this year. But I was very excited when I got the announcement this morning about all the president's men because it. Have you seen it, Ryan? Yeah, I, I had to watch it for history class. Oh, very when good. We in the Watergate scandal. Oh, good. I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's time to watch it again. Yeah. No, of course. No, I, I'm looking to revisit it this time, watching it for pleasure, not... Not because you have to. Not because I had to. <laughs> so on the Star Wars countdown yes. for episode eight, we have 640 days, 12 hours, 54 minutes, and about six seconds as soon as I speak, stop speaking the sentence to go. All right. As I predicted, it was seven days less... Yeah, but did we? What about the the daylight savings time hour? I, I completely forgot to check the podcast last week to check if we. Uh, <sighs> well, we'll we're have one hour closer to. A, we're one hour closer to Star Wars Eight, so that will be exciting. And yes, Brian is the official Star Wars counter. And as we get closer to Rogue One and all of these offshoots, we'll get you countdowns on that too for all of our Star Wars fans. Of which, as Brian knows, I am huge. A huge Star Wars fan. But talk about being a fan. We have two filmmakers that are joining us today that I am such a fan of. Uh, Two films that won a documentary, won a narrative feature. Our first guest that will join us at 11.15 is, this is his directorial debut, Abner Pastel, writer, director, and editor of a Hitchcockian thriller, Road Games. It is fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous. Abner blew my mind with this film uh, on every level of production design. It belies him being a first-time narrative fil- uh, feature filmmaker. Um, right that sound design. Anytime you get a thriller with a Hitchcockian feel to it, sound is very, very important. Sound is important to every film, but even more so when you get into the genre films. And so many directors forget about that, and they'll slap together something as, as being opposed to uh, being concerned about the sound design and the elements, right down to the sound, the specific sound of wind. Um, if anybody has read or listened to any of my interview with Lon Bender, who won the BAFTA for sound design for The Revenant, that's something that Lon and I talked about in depth with, um, about is you can have gale force winds. That doesn't sound the same as a breeze wafting through blades of grass. And these are the kind of details that Abner paid attention to with road games. Um, for all of you cult, cult classic fans out there, genre fans, Barbara Crampton is in the film. Barbara is also executive producer. Uh, and a more caring and nurturing executive producer I don't think I've ever seen. So we're going to talk to Abner at 11.15. Then, after Abner, a a real joy for me this year, uh, documentarian Laura Gabbert. Laura and I last spoke a couple years ago when she did the documentary No Impact Man that focused on Colin Beaven and his family who wanted to go an entire year and make no impact on the environment. So no electricity, no refrigerator. That meant no refrigerators. It meant, you know, composting everything, you know, outside your windowsill with worms and things, walking everywhere or biking. It was a very interesting documentary. Well, now Laura is back this year with, it is a love letter to the cultural history of Los Angeles and a really cool kind of travelogue uh, in a very broad sense of the word. It's called The City of Gold, and it focuses on the cultural history of Los Angeles through the eyes of food critic Jonathan Gold. Uh, All you foodies out there may know Jonathan from his column in LA Weekly. Um, It's not so much about the food itself, but the experience, the culture behind the restaurants, the culture behind the little pockets within Los Angeles itself. Uh, So we're going to talk to Laura about City of Gold. But first, there's a new movie coming out next week. We are in the Easter season, Passover season. So we already spoke about Risen the other week, and you heard from my exclusive interview with Joseph Fiennes. Uh, Now, I had a chance to sit down with the entire cast and crew and director, Patricia Riggin, for the new film opening next week called Miracles from Heaven. Uh, Many of you may know the story 
I guarantee you that my aunt down in Omaha, Georgia, knows the book, knows the story, a great woman of faith. Um, these things do not escape her. Miracles from Heaven is it's based on the true story of the Beam family. And the book was written by Christy Beam, who in the film is played by Jennifer Garner, based on the story of her daughter, Anna. Breakout star Kylie Rogers is in the film. Kylie had, uh, Anna had a motility disease that was killing her. Uh, despite all the care and treatment, despite flying to Boston from Texas to the preeminent uh, physician in the world who treated pediatric motility, there was nothing that could be done. At home, on their property, you know, their small ranch in Texas, Anna fell 30 feet inside a, inside a cottonwood tree that had rotted inside. And while in there, Anna maintains this, Christy maintains this, Anna experienced an out-of-body moment and went to heaven and spoke with, with God. This is the story now envisioned for the big screen. Patricia Riggin, who is a wonderful, wonderful director, and I'm happy to say a great pal to boot. I, we first met when she did La Misma Luna with Kate, uh, Kate Del Castillo and Eugenio Derbez some, a number of years ago. Eugenio has become Patricia's good luck charm, I think. Eugenio is in almost everything she does. Uh, plus, Kate also reprises in various films that Patricia has done. Uh, this is a spectacular direction of a film, keeping it the tone light, bringing it to life without becoming preachy, maudlin, or into overkill. It is uplifting, it is inspirational, it is hopeful, it is enjoyable, and it takes you on an emotional journey like none you have ever witnessed. Every parent out there will be able to relate to this, every aunt, every uncle of a small child, when you feel helpless and you can't help them. Um, Patricia's very proud of this film. I was just blown away by seeing it. So I had a chance to sit down with her in this exclusive interview to talk about Miracles from Heaven. And one of the big things was designing the visual look and working with her cinematographer, Cheko Varisi, who just happens to be her husband. Well, first, I'm very lucky with Cheko. He's very talented. And he's very fast, and he's very resourceful, and he always says yes to everything. And and he really wants the best for the movie, you know. So that it's good. It's a great thing. And we didn't, you know, we we had challenges, a lot of challenges, because we didn't have a lot of time. And I was facing the fact that I was working with a little girl, and that means very reduced hours through the day. And so it was tough. And somehow he managed to give me so many beautiful sunsets. I don't know mm. if you noticed so many beautiful lighting moments. Um, trying to think about the way we shot the movie. You know, we had challenges like spending so many days in one single hospital room mm -hmm. and making it always look different. And always approaching it differently in the way we shot it and, and in its light so that we wouldn't feel bored and we wouldn't feel like we're constrained, you know. So we that feel the passage of time, time, the way you shot it. it of time. <laughs> but it's the light also. It's the way I shoot it and it's the light because I always, I'm very aware of that, so I come in in a different way. So every time I, I, I would go into that room, I would find a different angle from where to to work that you know so this way you know and I would yeah. create this way and then when, if, if we switch around and we sit the other way we're going to have a different feeling mm -hmm. for this room so then this way you know and, and just always keeping in mind that the constraints to make the best out of them and because mm -hmm. we don't have like the budgets of the big movies you know I wish I had one day and I guarantee you one day Patricia will. We're going to come back to Patricia a little later in the show and hear some of the other things she had to say because the undertaking, the film was shot in Atlanta and she made incredible use of the 
the aquarium in Atlanta, as well as incorporating a, a stunning Monet masterpiece from the Gardens of Giverny that is on display at MoMA uh, in New York. And you'll hear more about that, as well as we'll talk a little about Queen Latifah, who is to die for in Miracles from Heaven. But right now, I am so thrilled because my friend Abner Pastol is with us. Hi, Abner. Hi there. How's it going? It is going. So how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I mean, we haven't, we haven't talked to each other in forever. <laughs> like what, like, 72 hours? Yeah. <laughs> so, road games. Let us, for, how was the box office this weekend? I actually don't know. Oh, my <laughs> I, Lord. I, I haven't paid attention to it yet. <laughs> and your executive producer did not bother to call or email you and tell you? No, not yet. Oh, my goodness. Well, 40 lashes with a wet noodle on Barbara for that one. (laughs) So, you know, as I was saying at the top of the show about road games, and as you know, I am am a huge fan of this movie. This movie. Thank you so much. It is, and Hitchcockian style thriller is the best description for this film. You know, what, for you, this is your first narrative feature, your writer, mm-hmm. director, and editor on this one. So, That's right. So when you sit down with the idea for this film of a guy from Britain is stranded in France, hitchhiking to get back to his home, a girl has a falling out with some guy and is also stranded on the road, and the two are hitchhiking together, but there is a serial killer on the loose that is allegedly killing people and leaving them, burying them on the, the side of the road. Mm-hmm. So how do you approach that when you sit down and say, oh, I like this idea? Of course, we're not going to talk about what kind of mind you have that comes up with this idea, Admir. <laughs> um, so what, did you intend to direct this from the start when you sat down to write the script? Yes, I did, actually. And the thing is that when I'm when I'm writing, I'm always I'm quite a visual person. So I I come up with so I listen the way that I the process that I write is I'm always listening to movie soundtracks uh, or not just movie soundtracks, but just music in general. And uh, that's what inspires the visuals. And then from the visuals, I construct the story. So writing the screenplay was very much my intent to eventually direct the movie, and I was very much thinking about not necessarily describing the shots in the script because I wanted the script to be its own thing, but mm-hmm. I, I had like my own full shot list beside the script basically as I was writing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the process of, of how I put it together. Well now, can, since I have seen the film a few times now and we've, and we've talked about it, we didn't talk about that the other day about you listening to soundtracks when you write. And I find that really interesting because with such dark themes, mm-hmm. you know, underpinning, you know, under, underlying this film as its base, your visuals are very light. Your exteriors are dazzling. You know, I'm in love with what, <laughs> with what Evan, with what your cinematographer Evan Bolter did with yeah. you on your visuals. They are light. You have these exteriors where the sun is shining and the the blades of grass are wafting in the wind. The trees are green, and it's so beautiful. And then you because have that was actually quite fun because the thing is that I kind of wanted to explore this beauty with an underlying darkness, rather than making the visuals dark. I wanted it, them to be really beautiful and bright, and mm-hmm. but the darkness is just lingering beneath it. Mm-hmm. So the darkness of the story is almost like an undercurrent. Well, and, and you even get with all of the trees and the local forestry in the region where you shot, you know, mm-hmm. it's also like it's cloaking, it's hiding something. You have that great visual metaphor going exactly. on as well. Yeah. But it's beautiful. <laughs> it's good to look at. <laughs> now, what what soundtracks were you listening listening to while you were writing Road Games that led you to the beauty that we see in the visual well, it's really grammar. interesting because I, I mean, I listen to a whole variety of composers and movie soundtracks, but specifically for this film, I think it was like Hitchcock's scores, so Bernard Herrmann and mm-hmm. then John Carpenter's scores. And I think you can probably feel the influence of mixing traditional orchestral music with a bit of a synth sound. Mm-hmm. That was 
basically something that I worked on with my composer, Daniel Elms, for quite some time. He was actually involved in the project for two years before we shot the movie. Wow. So I was collaborating with him on the sound and the feeling of the movie. And we even, he composed and he, we even recorded some music way before we shot the movie. And it wasn't used in the movie eventually. We changed it, but it was part almost of the development of it. Mm-hmm. So it really felt sometimes like he was in some way a co-writer, not writing with me on the story, but writing like the undercurrent, the feeling mm-hmm. and the tone. Because of, because of the way that music works in a movie, it helps you to make you feel things. His thing is very his His music is really subtle, and it's kind of doing the opposite of what you would expect music to normally do. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is something I just I love, and that's something that, and I'm glad that Bernard Herman was one of your inspirations. I am a huge fan of Bernard Herman and Max Steiner. I mm-hmm. will I will listen to anything any any score that they have done. Right. But there is that, you know. Quite often, when you go back and you, people that are familiar with their work, um, there is the score will often belie the the emotion that's in the forefront of a film. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what you and Daniel do so beautifully here with road games, because you've got twists and turns that up until the very last minute of the film, you really don't know. Is there a serial killer? Is there not a serial killer? Who is the serial (laughs) killer? And even then, as Barbara said the other day, even then you're still not sure. And that, (laughs) It just, it leaves you craving for more. That's good. That's good. That's very much the intent. Well, you know, now that means you have to make a sequel for me. (laughs) Will you finance it? (laughs) (laughs) If the stock market would do better. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I actually do, I've got a whole bunch of ideas of where I would take the characters and explore the story next. But I always wondered if it was just like some sort of self-indulgent thing. Or maybe I'm the only person that would actually be interested in that. But we'll see. It's good. You're interested. So there's I'm just, one person that wants to see it. Well, <laughs> yeah, and what you do so, so smartly is you have an ensemble cast, but it's a very small ensemble. As I said, you've got Barbara Crampton. You've got Andrew Simpson, who plays mm-hmm. our leading male, Jack. You've got Josephine de la Bama's Veronique. You've got Frederick Pirot as Grizzard, who plays Barbara's, the, the husband to Barbara's character of Mary. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, a friend of Grizzard's, uh, Delacroix, was played by Fedor Atkin. And yeah. so you keep it very contained without making the film or the characters claustrophobic. Right. And I think it's very much the, the wide open space of the countryside that does that. Mm-hmm. It keeps it open in a sense. It, be, it, 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 it kind of working against what you would expect it to feel like. Mm-hmm. How challenging was it when developed? Because these characters, each one in and of themselves, including the character of Delacroix, who does not have a lot of screen time, mm-hmm. but very powerful, very integral. It's not a character that you can just dismiss and throw away. Each of these five are, are interdependent on one another. Right. Was that was that very important to you when you were create when you were writing the script to have them de- interdependent upon one another so that nobody was indispensable? Well, I guess I guess I didn't really think about it too much that way. I, I, I wanted to I wanted to keep the cast small and just natural. It just sort of felt like it was a natural way of putting them together to be so integral to one another mm-hmm. because. I did, you know, like there were there were actually a couple of other characters that were in the screen in the script mm-hmm. um, that were not integral, and they ended up getting cut out of the movie. We even shot some scenes at the beginning of the film, and they all got cut out. <laughs> I think specifically for that reason, because they weren't necessarily integral to the other characters. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of something that I guess that was it developed as I was writing mm-hmm. the script. Do you find? How they, how they connected to one another. Do you find, as a director and as a, as a film-goer, do you find that some, some of these films, they, get, they have so many extraneous characters that it does draw your attention away from the main characters, which is who you want to see? Yeah, many, many times. Many times. I, I feel that many films that 
have a ton of characters that are not necessary, or they're trying to somehow... I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't think of anything specifically, but I always... I am much more engaged in a movie when everything sort of interconnects, even mm-hmm. if you don't know it at the beginning. But by the end of the film, you realize how everyone is integral to one another. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you know, here you have one major set piece, which is the house uh, that Mary and Grizzard live in. Right. How did... And when people see the film... They are going to just take a, they are going to gasp at the exterior of this old, you know, French quote unquote estate. And then the inside, which is just, it's gorgeous in terms of history and texture. How did you find the house that you ended up using in the film? Um, with a great location manager and a lot of <laughs> spending a lot of time scouring the countryside trying to we, we we i mean we looked at loads of houses he my location manager basically he he just spent weeks and weeks traveling around the country just looking at places and he would send me photos and then we did a short list based on photos and uh then i went to s- sort of see a whole bunch of stuff and it was just basically pure luck that we found this place it was just so in a way, it was actually quite different to how I had imagined the house in the script because, I mean, when you're writing, you, you, you can never necessarily find exactly how you imagined it. Mm-hmm. But it had so much more. It was just like this own... It's its own character, and it was it had all of these amazing rooms and spaces, and, yeah, it was just basically good, you know, spending a long time looking for it and a lot of luck. Now, this place. now once you, you had this, this house as your location... You know, did that impact how you reimagined the visuals? Yeah, naturally, that's what kind of what happens because you're in a different space than you were in your head with the idea of how it was originally going to look. So you, you know, I was really you have to be on your toes a little bit and be able be able to you know come up with a new idea on how you're going to shoot the scene because maybe you can't do it the way that you imagined because maybe the room's too small or or whatever. But it was, a good, it was really good because I kind of enjoyed blocking out the scene with the actors and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Well, now, and speaking of your actors, your cast is just absolutely amazing. And all of them have this wonderful chemistry with one another. Andrew and Josephine are, from the start, the minute they meet each other on the road, there is this very, there's a strong chemistry between them. Similarly, Barbara and Frederick have a chemistry that it's a strong chemistry, albeit strange, given the nature of their characters. (laughs) How difficult was it to cast this film because of the small number in the ensemble and also because of the necessity of needing specific chemistries with these actors? Um. It was pretty difficult. I mean, we had a couple, basically, okay, so for the role that Barbara plays, I never had another actor involved in the film at any point. But the, all of the other characters, um, I had other a- actors involved and attached to the project. But because of, ske- of scheduling, delays, financing, all that kind of stuff, all, all the usual boring stuff, I had actors come and go. So the project kind of changed and evolved, as did everything else. Mm-hmm. And then I reached a point where I had to basically find the new cut, the new cast that is now in the film. And I, um, I literally just met with every young actor and actress in the UK and France of the same age group as Andrew and Josephine. And I sat down with each and every one of them and just chose based on who they were as a person, what, how they responded to the material, and whether or not I felt like I was their friend and whether I could get along with them. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of how I chose Josephine and Andrew, and um, Frederick. I kind of I always knew I wanted him for the role. Mm-hmm. I um, having been a big fan of his for years. It, inadvertently, I think I kind of wrote the role for him. He was always in my head when I was writing the character. I just he helped me. I pictured him in the role. So when we first started casting. He wasn't because he's a character actor, and he's not necessarily known other than his face. 
Mm. You want, you know, for, when it comes to put your first film together, people need a name and all of these boring things. And it, it didn't really make sense for my French co-producer. But then in the process of doing the casting, in that same time, he did the show, The Returned, and all of a sudden he was a really interesting actor for the role. So we sent him the script and he really loved it. <laughs> and I was really grateful that that turned out in that way because I always wanted him for the role. And that was lucky. And I got along so well with him as well. Well, the same thing when I... Sorry? No, go ahead. Yeah, and the same, same thing when I, when I then reached out to Barbara and sent her the script and she responded so well to the material. That was fantastic. So we brought them all together. And ha being from France, UK, and then the States, all these different places, all in one place, and they all got along immediately. And that was the best thing that could have happened <laughs> because you never know if they're going to get along mm -hmm. necessarily. But I think like somehow, by luck or by chance or whatever, I chose the right people. And mm -hmm. we got along so well when we were shooting that we had these long days shooting together and we just could not wait to get back at the end of the day to the hotel lobby to hang out with each other <laughs> and drink wine and just discuss what we had done. And yeah. So it was a, a really fun experience. And I can say, sitting there with you and Barbara the other day and seeing the joy on your faces when you were telling, talking to me and telling me about how excited you were after shooting to just go hang out, everybody yeah. hang out together at night. You don't always see that. And no, it, no. it was, it was, I can honestly say it was so beautiful to see that reaction on your faces. <laughs> um, you know, the joy that you still have on the, of the experience and the memories, you know, oh, yeah. of I, making this I, film. I fondly remember that. I, I kind of wish that we were still shooting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, another reason to make a sequel. Ah, you see, there you go. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm working with you here, you know. I, okay, I, yeah, I, <laughs> great. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> now, you know, I mentioned, you know, before before you called in, I was mentioning uh, early in the show about your sound design. Because right. the sound here, you know, I just, I'm enamored with the sound design. Yeah, that's right. Of this film. How challenging was it developing your your auditory palette for this well, film? It's it's kind of, I mean it wasn't so challenging. I, I just had a really great team, really great senior team in the post production. So having their uh, experience and their suggestions was just it was just wonderful to work with them. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that some of it was planned during the shooting, so there were certain sound effects and atmospheres and winds and, and stuff that I wanted my sound recordist on set to actually capture. So he captured a lot of that stuff that was then utilized in the sound design. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but it was, there was also so much enhancement from my sound designer, Peter Baldock, and also from my sound mixer in Paris, Alexandra Widmer. Mm -hmm. um, he's worked on films like Amelie and Taken, and then he's also done The Return, the TV series. Mm -hmm. And having having actually an, an English sound designer and then the French mixer working together was also really amazing because that was it kind of went in with the nature of the whole film. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, it was. And we even used some of those sounds that we recorded on set actually in the school. So there are certain like sounds, creaking sounds from the house, and you you wouldn't notice them necessarily. But Daniel Elms, my composer, he put those real sounds into his music palette basically i was gonna say there there is a lot of ambient there are many ambient tones within daniel's scoring yeah and it's just it is such a there's such a fluidity amongst you know every element of this film abner you know from your performance to your visuals to your sound design to the scoring it just flows you know it I talk about visual grammar and tonal bandwidth a lot. And mm -hmm. you, this entire film is just, it's a perfect marriage of all of those elements to achieve the final product. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than thanks. Oh. I'm glad that you liked it so much. So now, is the film is in theaters now? It's in theaters and it's also available on demand on Amazon and iTunes and all of the uh, cable DOD platforms to rent. So there's no excuse. It's available. It's out there. And will it be going wider in theaters or staying on a small release right now? At the moment, I think it's staying limited. It's in a, it's on about five or six screens across the country. Yeah. 
think it's uh, New York, LA. And then there are a couple of other places, and I think Virginia, the Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, and uh, I can't actually remember what else it is, but it's a, the information is, is all on the website at IFC Films. And is, are we also, do we have www.roadgames? Do we have a website? No, there, it's is, all a, on a, there, there is a Twitter, um, Road Games Movie Twitter handle that can, you can go and follow for the latest updates. And everybody should. Abner, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's my pleasure. This has been a real Great treat. Great to talk to you. And you will come back again, won't you? Of course. All right. Well, we're going to be we're making the sequel together. That's, so. that's exactly this. We have to. We have to. We'll get Barbara on board, too. Yeah, I'm sure, she, I'm sure she's on board. I didn't even have to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Ab- just offer some wine. <laughs> oh. Abner, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Abner Pastel talking about road games. And now one of my favorite documentarians, Laura Gabbard, is here. Hello. Hello, Laura. Welcome, welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm just, I'm just so thrilled. This is great, uh-huh. you know, t- what, twice in one week instead of twice in two years. It's, it's fabulous. I know, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> and, of course, here we are with... Another golden nugget uh, in your pouch, in your directorial pouch, with <laughs> City of Gold. Yes, yeah, City of Gold. We're excited about it. You know, for those, I, I, you know, gave people a little overview at the top of the show, but you know, how would you describe this documentary? Because as as you and I had talked before, I said, you know, the way this is being marketed. And people look at posters and clips, and they think it's it's all about food. But this is so much more. This is not a foodie film. This is so much more yeah, and and more yeah. better. I, you know, I, I think of it as you know, it is it is a, it is in some sense it's a it's a portrait of Jonathan Gold, uh, the L.A. Times food writer. Um, but I think that it's really kind of uses food as a food and and Los Angeles restaurants as a portal through which to look at kind of Los Angeles culture in the city and the diverse populations mm-hmm. and the people who live here. Yeah. You know, now, how did you, where did this idea come from for you? Because doing a documentary about food or restaurants, that's one thing, but to mm-hmm. do it through the eyes of Jonathan Gold, acclaimed food critic, who isn't so much talking about, as we see unfold, he's not so much talking about what's on the plate in front of you in restaurants, but talking about the experience of of the history of how this type of food came to the region, how these restaurants took shape through the culture and the, and the family and the generational aspect. How did, how did you approach and get this idea? Because this is very much outside the box. Yeah, you know... Um I can back up a little bit. I, I moved to Los Angeles in the mid-90s and um, to go to graduate school and was apprehensive about living here, very apprehensive, and just kind of assumed I wouldn't like Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, because of all the kind of stereotypes we all know about. Um, and I started reading Jonathan's columns, and it, it slowly began to change the way I saw Los Angeles. And I, I learned that you actually need to, be willing to seek out and uncover its mysteries, and it's actually the process of exploring and discovering that makes you fall in love with the city. Um, and, you know, I started to fall in love with the city. I discovered this really, I don't know, kind of paradoxical, beautiful, exciting city as I saw the city through Jonathan's eyes. Because a lot of Jonathan's writing is about, um, you know, how you, how you... Can you hear me? I'm sorry. Oh, I hear you. How you okay, how you get to these places. He kind of takes you on a bit of a, a bit of a adventure as you get there. So you cross different neighborhoods and you cross freeways and, and it's part of that exploration and part of that adventure. Um, and through that, you learn about the city and you start to see it differently. Mm. Um, and then I, so I, I was really more interested in kind of the, the broader idea of culture than food, but food is such a direct point of access to sort of, you know, enter those cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, you know, followed his lead. It was really about using his writing and then figuring out how to tell that story cinematically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you briefly touched on it of crossing freeways and going up and down roads. And that's something that I just, 
I fell in love with with this documentary in your construct is because so much of the of the transitory exposition of the film takes place. You just have the camera on Jonathan while he's in the car driving, and you see the the city of Los Angeles changing as you're going in and out of neighborhoods, and it, it, there's this great fluidity and ease to it. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. You know what I found was that that was just. We, we tried a lot of sit-down interviews, and we did use many of them as VO, and there are some actual on-camera interviews in the film, but I found that Jonathan was at his most relaxed and the most himself as he was, like, behind the wheel of that old Dodge pickup truck. Um, and then also this became a great way, a more kind of, like, meditative way to sort of experience the city. You know, there's mm-hmm. something that's a nice pace to sort of seeing someone drive and have them glance out the window and, you know, cut to scenery and people going by. Um, so it just kind of became a way to sort of transition to different scenes, but it also became part of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, and and in a similar vein there, it's very analogous to how you should, people should be appreciating when they're going to these various restaurants that Jonathan writes about that he taught and the food experiences that he talks about. This is really how they should also be appreciating and experiencing the very meals that all that stem from all of this culture. That's correct. That's correct. And it's and it's you know it's kind of learning to see beyond just the surface of LA, you know, because it doesn't hit you like uh, New York or San Francisco or Chicago hits you. You know, you mm-hmm. don't. It doesn't have that kind of immediate charm and those big beautiful buildings. It's very subtle. The beauty is very subtle. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, and and you just unfold so many different enclaves within the city of L.A. How did you end up, you know, selecting, uh, you know, the types the types of restaurants, the types of food, the cultures that are, you know, uncovered in City of Gold? You know, I, I mean, there there were. It's, it's a good question. You know, it's, it's a documentary, so we shot a lot of scenes that didn't make it into the movie. So it's not like we had a tight treatment kind of um, or list of restaurants we wanted going into the film. It, we shot over four years, so a lot of it was just following Jonathan wherever he went. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ground rules going in was that we couldn't film him reviewing a restaurant. Um, so we started out kind of going to some of the quintessential Jonathan Gold places, the places mm-hmm. that have been on his, you know, his L.A. Weekly and L.A. Times list for years, like Jitlada and Galagatsa and, and those types of places. Um, and then, you know, of course, once we were in the editing room, we tried to find a nice kind of diverse group of restaurants, but it was really about which scenes rose to the top in terms of how they tied into the story we were telling and the themes we were exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't say that there was a very tight sort of structure or list of what we put in. I mean, you know, certainly there are, restaurants I wish you could have gotten in there and were in rougher, longer cuts of the movie that didn't make it. But um, we certainly tried to show different pockets, and we were definitely interested in showing the kind of restaurants that Jonathan's sort of known for writing about, you know, the ones in San Gabriel Valley and kind of the the far, the far restaurants out in far-flung areas that, that people don't really know about um, or aren't, aren't run by famous celebrity chefs, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I was particular that I, I took particular note of. This isn't one of uh, it's not a celebrity chef showcase. It's not. It's not. I mean, there happen to be a, you know some well known chefs in there like Roy Choi and Little Lefebvre and those types of people. But you know, we get a lot of those chefs in other kind of food media. So. Um, and it's really not, it's really not, you know, Jonathan writes about those kinds of restaurants beautifully. He he writes about high-end restaurants all the time for the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Times. But um, what he's really known for is, is is sort of democratizing food writing and and democratizing culture at large by writing about, you know, recent immigrant restaurants and writing about these new communities that pop mm-hmm. up deep into the San Gabriel Valley or deep in South L.A. or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that, that was more interesting to me because I feel like, People see Los Angeles in such a kind of narrow way, people from the outside. And, you know, Beverly Hills and the beach, I mean, those are just tiny slivers of what makes up greater Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the thing, two of the things that thrilled me that you included in here were food trucks and delis. And, you know, I remember, and so many other parts of the country, and I remember when I was in college back in Philly, food trucks, they were the old white metal you know, yeah. just prefab, 
you know, uh-huh. food wrapped up and sometimes wrapped up, sometimes not wrapped up in saran wrap and yep. you just grab it. But, you know, food trucks in Los Angeles have become, you know, so popular, but the food is absolutely phenomenal. And to see the genesis of so many of these unfold. It's not just people get an idea of, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to get a truck and I'm going to cook food and I'm going to sell food. No, it, it, there's a lot of cultural background and you touch on that in here. Yeah. Well, you have everyone from, you know, Wes Avila, who's classically trained by, by famous, you know, French chefs and restaurants who has his truck, Rilla Tacos. So he's applying these, these, you know, very sort of refined skills and really, really high-quality ingredients to tacos on the street in downtown mm-hmm. Los Angeles, right? So you have that. But then you also have, you know, people like, um, you know, the restaurant Antojitas Carmen, um, and they started out as just a street vendor, not yeah. even a truck. Um, so <laughs> you get the whole range, you know, but they're, they're both, you know, Antojitas Carmen is incredible food, as is Gorilla Tacos. Very, very different, but both really wonderful, and, you know, Jonathan... Loves both of them. Mm-hmm. What what for you out of all the all the places that Jonathan took you and as this documentary was unfolding, was there one place that really broke your heart you couldn't include? You know, there there were a couple of places. One in particular was um, a place called Fomen, which um, actually was it was in a longer, a slightly longer cut that we showed at Sundance in 2015. And we ended up just trying to shave off a few minutes after mm-hmm. Sundance. But Fomin is a, was a place actually in, um, El Monte in the Southern Gabriel Valley. And it was just a very simple, uh, pho shop, you know, mm-hmm. and Jonathan had raved about it for years and thought it was the best kind of most pure pho in the city. Um, and it's a scene where he really talks about why he loves, you know, pho, that it's like tied to a tradition, it's tied to a place, like there's history behind the dish. Um, and it's a place that, you know, it's kind of the flip side. It's like Jonathan had raved about it and this place was around for a few years and people went to it, but it was so tucked away and so off the beaten track that it mm-hmm. didn't make it. It had to close down at a certain point. And I, I wish we could have included that. Oh, yeah. Oh. Now, how many hours of footage did you accumulate, and were you editing while you were filming, or did you wait until you had assimilated everything and then sat down, took a deep breath, and went, oh, my God, where do we start? <laughs> you know, um, good question. And, and in the past, I've generally shot and shot and shot and shot, stopped and edited and maybe gone, up, gone back for some pickups while we're editing. This was different. We shot on and off for four years. Um and we started, when we started editing, let's see, you know, we started just kind of piecing together scenes. It was a really tough film to edit because it, it doesn't have sort of a, you know, apparent structure. We didn't mm-hmm. have a beginning, middle, and end. There's not big dramatic conflict in the film. Um, there's not sort of something like, there's something chronological that you can kind of, you know, kind of apply to the story. So once we started editing just scenes I knew that could work, then we went back and shot quite a bit that fifth year. So the fifth year we were really, I would say maybe three or four months of it, we were editing part-time and shooting a lot. And then, you know, the last like nine months we were editing full-time and still shooting maybe once every two weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And we were still shooting a ton of scenics and B-roll and drone shots that whole time trying to, trying to kind of map out the city cinematically. Mm-hmm. Now, for you as a director and as a documentarian in, in particular, do you like that kind of challenge that really pushes you, test your skill set in development and storytelling when you, you're crafting it like this as opposed to a, a more set structure like you had with No Impact Man? You know, I mean, I, I did, lo- I did love the challenge. I mean, I, I, I have to admit there was a lot of self-doubt as we were editing it and mm-hmm. even as we were shooting it. It was a really tough film to figure out how, I mean, I had to, I had to keep asking myself, what is this film about? Like, what is the, what is the film I want to make here? Cause it would get, there's so many aspects to Jonathan and the city and chefs. And I think it was, I was very confounded for, for a big part of the project about how to really make the film. Um, but I think that, what, like, once I just, I would just go back to the sort of the feeling I had when I would read Jonathan's writing, and I wanted mm-hmm. to try to capture that feeling 
um, you know, in the film. And then, and then the whole kind of, you know, in the sort of last third of the film, we start exploring Jonathan's personal history, um, mm-hmm. his kind of biography and his background as a music critic and his upbringing and his relationship with his kids and his different influences. And that then kind of tied it together for us. I felt like we had to kind of learn who Jonathan was and learn about his writing and learn about the city of Los Angeles a little bit and even things as sort of maybe academic as, you know, talking about the fact that the postmodern city is a decentralized city and talk a little bit about the history of immigration here before we could kind of get into, like, the heart of Jonathan, mm-hmm. which is, like, his personal story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find that that structure that you that of doing that and his personal story coming up in the third act. So many directors would have put that in the first act, but you just jump yeah. right in. Yeah, you know, it's we it's something we struggle with a lot, and I can't say that I was totally confident about it. It was trial and error. I mean, we tried it a number of different places. We tried peppering it throughout, but it just felt like it worked. It was really just like what works emotionally, what are you ready for, what have we earned, like hearing about Jonathan's personal story mm-hmm. and I felt like at that point, an hour into the film, you're really, you're, you're ready for it and you're kind of interested in it and primed for it. And, and there's a lot of things in his personal story that are very, you know, emotional and moving. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even just his relationship with his children is, you know, something that was a little bit more, you know, it's more intimate, it's more tender. And right. it, it kind of lets you in on a part of Jonathan that you don't know about by reading his writing. Mm-hmm. So now, now that you've made you've made distinctly different pieces, you know, films in your career so far. What did you mm-hmm. learn about yourself in the process of making City of Gold? Gosh, what a good question. Um, I don't know. I think I do think that you. Know, it's funny. Like I go back and look when I teach. Sometimes I'm always when people pitch me their projects. They oftentimes pitch me pitch me these sort of topical documentaries. It's a it's a documentary about, you know, this person or this event or this point in history. And I always try to get to, like, why do you want to make this film and what is this film really about, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, what's the, not what the storyline, not, not the topic, but what are you trying to express in telling this film? And I think that that – I had to keep asking myself <laughs> that question I asked students, you know, while I was making this because I would get really lost and can kind of confused while I was making it. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a really good question. I think that I, I, I really had wonderful collaborators on this film, mm-hmm. and I think I learned to really trust my collaborators and really bring them into the process. I mean, I've always, I feel like I'm generally a collaborative filmmaker, and I've done that in the past, but this was really like, like even with my cinematographer, we worked together so closely, even through the editing, um, especially Jerry Henry, who shot most of the scenics. He would I'd have him come into the editing room and I'd look at stuff we'd cut and we'd say like, this works, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And then you'd go back out into the field and shoot more. And I don't know. I think, um, I think I just learned how important those collaborations are and, and then how much everyone kind of gets in return from those. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, for me watching, you know, watching it, no impact man, watching city of gold, I see such a difference in your approach and in your style, and I see this hmm. this, inc- this emotional growth in your storytelling between the two. Oh, that's wonderful! Thank you. Now, I feel like it pushed me. I had to. It really stretched me as a filmmaker, and some of that was painful, <laughs> 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 not fun. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I just. I think it was. It, it sort of forced me to be more of a filmmaker. It forced me, it forced me to sort of figure out, okay, what are, what are the tools at my disposal here and how can we use, how can we visualize things to sort of tell this story and make it a little bit more lyrical and more poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, it, I think that No Impact Man didn't sort of lend itself to that kind of storytelling right. as much, really, but um, I think this really re- required it because I knew I didn't want it to, it to be just a food documentary or just a straight kind of, you know, dead-on portrait doc. Mm-hmm. I felt like it had to sort of transcend that somehow for it to really, I don't know, you know, for, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to sort of, I'm, you're, you're making a film about a Pulitzer Prize winning critic, and I felt a lot of pressure to, um, 
you know, have it rise to the occasion, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm still making point of view. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. I've interviewed some Pulitzer Prize winners before, and you sit there and it's like, oh, God, I hope I don't sound like an idiot. Right, yeah, you just can't help but have self-doubt and feel insecure about it along the way, you know. So, um, so now, yeah. So now, City of Gold is in theaters. Is it going unlimited? Is it going wider? Is it on VOD yet? Where can everybody experience this terrific doc? Oh, thanks. Um, it's in it's in select theaters now, so it's in New York and Los Angeles. But in let's see, next week and expanding to several other places: San Francisco and Chicago mm-hmm. and Minneapolis and a number of other cities. I think it's expanding to about twenty five or thirty cities. Oh, nice. Um, now, is it on VOD yeah. yet? Not VOD yet. They're doing more of a traditional release. I don't have the VOD date mm-hmm. yet, but it's, I think they're going to push the theatrical for a while. And a website people can go to to stay advised and apprised? Yeah, City of, City of Gold Doc. Cityofgolddoc.com? Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Laura, and, you know, people out there, just because this is about Jonathan Gold looking at the cultural, you know, gastro, you know gastronomic view of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't mean if you're in New York, if you're in Chicago that you won't like this. You will love this dock, and you will put all of these places, and it will make you want to come and visit. Don't stay here, but you can come and visit. And also, I think one more thing about that, I mean, what we hear from people when we show in other cities is they like, oh, I want to take the way Jonathan explores Los Angeles, and I want to apply that to my own city. We hear a lot of that when we show it to audiences, which I love. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, it's neat. Okay, really see, cool. now, now you're making me think. Next time, I, next time I go back to Philly, it's like, okay, maybe I need to go and explore. Yeah. Besi- yeah, I do. Besides great. going to all the cheesesteak places, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there is more to Philadelphia than cheesesteaks and hoagies. <laughs> I know that. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for joining thank me you. today. It's really wonderful being on your show. Oh, my God. Anytime. You've got an open door invitation. Anytime okay. you want. Thanks so much. Laura, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was Laura Gabbert, writer-director of the documentary City of Gold. And let's see, I know we don't have, we don't have time to run another clip of uh, Patricia, do we, Brian? We can do clip three? Oh, okay. Well, we're going to jump, jump a little he- ahead here then and get back to Miracles from Heaven for a second and hear a little bit more from Patricia Regan about creating some of the visual moments in the film, including, you know, the idea of heaven and using the aquarium in Atlanta. You know what? I, I, again, we got lucky because Atlanta has this stunning aquarium. It's one of the best aquariums in the world. And when I saw it, I'm like, okay, this is the city where we're going to shoot because I want this aquarium. I wanted to have as many visual moments as I could with this movie. Mm-hmm. Again, for the reason of let's let the audience have a good journey. It's a very painful story. And if I don't give them the, that, that breath of air and those visual moments, what, what am I going to give them? Only pain, you know? So that's how I came up with all those moments to just really let the audience have good, beautiful, easy moments and then bring them back. Mm-hmm. to the pain of the of this story of the real yeah, story. You, you... And you know, you'll hear more on next week's show of my exclusive interview with Patricia Riggin, also with the incredible Eugenio Derbez. Miracles from Heaven is actually out in theaters on the sixteenth, so it will be out this week. And also the book, those of you watching uh, the video portion of the show later this week, you can see it here. Let me even grab it. I'm going to I'm going to ruin my own table display here. Okay. And we have the book Miracles from Heaven by Christy Beam. It is fabulous. There are photos from the film that are included in here. There's also, you know, a discussion guide for parents to be able to sit down and talk to their children about what unfolds um, you know, in the movie, in the story of the Beam family. Um, so the book is out there as well. You know, anybody that knows me that listens to the show, reads my columns, literacy, where there's a, where there's a movie, there's a good book. So 
get the book, see the movie. We'll be back next week. Alex Ruiz from Telemundo's Quienes Quien will be with us live. Until then, Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.